Thank you very much. Um, it's true that the last time I was in this room, I heard Paley read, and she was a big hero of mine. Uh, and so I find myself slightly off-center at the recollection of what an important night that was for me being here. Um, she read this piece that was sort of about, I think about her grandparents coming to America. And, and I remember sitting around with some other people who had been at the reading afterwards, and we were sort of parsing whether we thought the piece was a short story or an essay. And um, some of you may have known Grace or know of her by reputation a little bit, but she was especially, I think, late in life, um, not a woman of many, many words and uh, suffered no fools. And she sort of kind of got in the middle of the discussion and said, they're all just stories. And that, and thus were we silenced. And and ever since then, I've been thinking about that moment. It was so, it was an incredibly influential moment for me. Yeah. So anyway, to be here again, thinking of that, it's hard to not feel that I'm a pale shadow, but I'm going to do my best here. So Gary described the new book to you. It started out being based on a really bad B-horror film from 1963 called The Crawling Hand. Has anyone seen The Crawling Hand? Yes, some nodding heads. All right, it's really dreadful. And the best part about it is that when the hand was strangling people, the actors would have to hold the rubberized hand up to their throat and kind of go, <coughs> pretending to strangle themselves with it. I loved it as a kid so thoroughly. So I decided I would try to update The Crawling Hand. Um, but then in the middle of doing it, I got involved in one of these uh, auctions for charity where they auction off a character name for you. Somebody pays a certain amount of money to said charity, and then you have to use their name in your book. And... Uh, so this was the First Amendment uh, project in California, a very good organization, fine, important organization. And so I said, sure, go ahead. And, and you know, a couple weeks later, they came back and they said, we've got a great name for you. The winner was Montese Crandall. <laughs> and right away, even though I already had, you know, the plot and everything in mind, the book just ran away with Montese Crandall. Just the name alone was enough to completely change the entire cast of the thing. So the book ended up becoming a novelization of a future remake of The Crawling Hand by Montese Crandall. But Montese also provides an introduction and an afterword and some notes. And the beginning of the book then is introduction by Montese Crandall, and this is sort of how it starts. It's a comedy, by the way, so don't hold back. People often ask me where I get my ideas. Or on one occasion back in 2024, I was asked, this was at a reading in an old-fashioned used media outlet right here in town, the store called 
Arachnids Incorporated. The audience consisted of five intrepid and stalwart folks, four out of the five no doubt intent on surfing aimlessly at consoles, or perhaps they intended to leave the store when instead they were herded into a cluster of uncomfortable petrochemical multi-use furniture modules by Noel Stroop, the hard-drinking owner-operator of the shop in question. I'd been pestering Noel about a reading for some time, months, despite the fact that Arachnids was not celebrated for its calendar of arts-related programming. To be honest, the reason for this pestering had most to do with my wife, who'd spend her remaining time on Earth counseling me on just how to boost my product. Ask Noel, my wife said, her eyes full of implacable purpose. We used to see Noel at the flea market, which by now took up more than a dozen city blocks. There were more flea markets than licensed tax-paying emporia in Rio, Rio Blanco. I had a booth there where on weekends I hawked old baseball cards and other sports memorabilia. Skipping, skipping. This, therefore, is my business. It was here at the flea market, according to my wife's plans, that I screwed up my non-existent courage one Sunday and said to Noel Stroop, who is busy selling software modules, something called a compact disc and ebook files, hey, Noel, what does a guy like me, a literary innovator, have to do in this town to get some respect? Perhaps you're wondering what I have done to merit such a high opinion of my legacy. What is the nature of the Montese Crandall literary innovation? I'm going to take the remainder of these notes to fully explicate my response to this question. Let me then throw down the gauntlet and remark that I, Montese Crandall, MFA, <laughs> write very short, very condensed literary pieces. And by short, I mean very, very short. Shorter than you've probably read in your reading life. More than one word, usually because one word is too easy, but quite a bit more modest than five score. The 350 pages of a novel, according to the argument I am wont to advance, are tedious elaboration. As I understand it, death, war, and adultery are the major novelistic themes, and these were all dispensed with well before Christ got nailed to his block of wood. The 19th century novel, you opine? Well, the 19th century novel does have it all. Attic-dwelling inheritance, uncanny coincidences, advantageous marriages to strong, silent landowners, orphans, revolutions, wailing. You can't go wrong with the 19th century novel, but much that has been writ written since amounts to imitation, barely warmed over by writers with strange grammatical inclinations. Lovelorn women of Canada. 
incest on the southern plantation. Drug using editorial assistants. We've heard it all before. Yours truly, Montese Crandall, living out his Pacific middle age in a college town next door over to nowhere at all, is unwilling to add more roughage to this diet. One thing the late 20th century was good at besides mass marketing, pairing away, omitting needless words, alluding without overstating, dust bunny under radiator, cockroach on window blind, scotch bottles, heartbreak in the food court, impotence subdivisions melanoma, muffler problems. Upon the advent of the digital age, as you know, writers who went on and on just didn't last. You couldn't read all that nonsense on a screen. Fragmentation became the one true way. Additionally, this strategic reduction blurred the line between poetry and prose, which is where I, Montese Crandall, come into the story. I, Montese Crandall, rely heavily on such strategies as alliteration, condensation, the strange ghostly echo of metrical feet, iams and dactyls, spondees and amphibracts. For example, here's a pair of amphibracts that might very well summarize my entire output. Romantic objective. The phrase does have a fine euphony. My first groundbreaking and innovative one-sentence story occurred in the following way. I'd been working on a 45-page erotic novella that was loosely based on my boundless physical desire for my wife, Tara Schott Crandall. The sequence in which I performed a certain advanced delight upon her delicately canted pelvis ran well over 20 pages. And her muse and snorts of transport, as described in the text, would pierce the waxy consciousnesses of neighbors up and down the block. Her cries of delight, as described therein, were likened to the coyote howling on the mesa, the kettle shrilling on the stovetop. Sopranos and local opera companies would hang their heads, for they knew that when Tara shot Crandall climaxed, they were out of a job. <laughs> I am afraid I cut the entire passage, the erotic part. And not only that, then I cut the opening and the ending. I cut a lot of the middle. I cut the part where we were post-coitally sharing a glass of Van Ordinaire. Next, 
I cut the astoundingly tender moment in the story where, in snappy dialogue, Tara and I revisited our assignations past, the time in the back of a minivan, the time in the woods when we got poison ivy, the time in the press box at the basketball game. For a while, a single scene remained in which the Tara character, called Serena in this early draft, sent me out after lovemaking for eggs. Eggs. So beautiful. So fecund. Likely to balance on their oblong points during the equinoxes. Symbols of fertility. Available in multiple sizes, including jumbo. I couldn't let go of this scene for a while. You know how this is. And yet... After three months of wrestling with that story, I cut the entire tangle of misbegotten sentences. The whole sprawling mess, or almost all of it, leaving none at last but the following. Go get some eggs, you dwarf. I don't expect everyone reading this introduction to see immediately the merit in this sentence. And yet the awakening, the unfolding that occurred to me after a relaxed consideration of the six words that remained of my longer work, this unfolding located itself in the fact that the more I read and reread the sentence above, the better I liked it. I printed it out in various fonts. I pulled my few remaining hairs out trying to decide whether to cut the word go. I pronounced the entirety of the story aloud to myself while walking from our ramshackle subdivision to the shipping offices where I then occasionally pulled a shift. I would intone the sentence while going past the shuttered health and beauty aids purveyor on 22nd and Mountain. I would say it while taking my number at the Wobegon post office on 6th, I shouted it at the beckoning doors of the gay bars on 4th Avenue. I said it to myself at the food co-op as if the eggs in question were an actual part of my shopping agenda. I can't tell you how long it took me in my ecstatically creative state to realize that in fact there needn't be an exclamation point at the end. My wife, whose health situation had taken a rather unsettling turn, never, never approved of the long version of the story, though she generally supported whatever wind blew me along in my compositional hobbies, as long as I took seriously the post-compositional portion of the writer's life and got out there to sell, sell, sell. She did, however, enjoy Go Get Some Eggs, You Dwarf. Where, my wife inquired, was I going to publish the story? Was I going to pit against one another some nationally recognized periodicals? And what about book publication? Had I considered a run of hardcovers? In fact, I had secured agreement with a little web periodical called Mud Hut, where my story got an entire page to itself. 
Not six months later, fresh from the victory just described, I came up with what I like to think of as the second finest narrative I've ever composed. And yet before I type out for you that magnificence, I should describe what I look like because it bears on the interpretation of this second effort. I am, you should know, in my late 40s. And it is simply being honest to note that my metabolism, which was doing wind sprints and stomach crunches throughout the dark ages of my 20s, has lately taken an ill-advised nap. I am now the site of an unmistakable sag, as if some avalanche stirred at the crest of my solar plexus and sent all the flab in my northern latitudes towards my once noble pubic swell. With fancy holographic belt buckles do I attempt to restrain my stampeding softness in vain. Additionally, my hair is thinning and my skin, which once had the virtue of being free from the blemishes that trouble the young, is now mottled and flaky. Burst blood vessels lead the eye of any observer astray around my nose. I am yoked to bifocals for my ocular needs. I have fallen arches. My only virtues as a physical specimen are my sideburns, which are like the pelts of a rare woodland animal. My sideburns are not to be ignored. No one, let it be said, would mistake me for a pugilist, for a law and order type of guy, for a person drawn to physical conflicts, for a militarist. I do not carry a taser or other weapon, though this is legal and even encouraged in my state. However, I could easily write at least five pages about these sorts of weapons, the Gatling, the Armalite, the Glock, the Proton Disruptor revealing a complex and deeply-seated need for appurtenances of male power and phallic supremacy, even as I disdain these commonplaces in my everyday life and incline in this era of Islamist saber-rattling toward a foreign policy of tolerance and non-intervention. And yet, as you will have surmised at this point, the five pages of such a story would sooner or later be stripped of elaborations, adjectives, adverbs, astute geopolitical views, until what remained was only, we went with the stealth bomber. This was a sentence of such limpid beauty and such durability that it was very difficult to follow up, notwithstanding an unprecedented second publication on the Mud Hut site. So affecting was the sentence, in fact, that there was a danger of having composed it, namely that I would retreat to the reliable paycheck of some day job, becoming, for example, an exclusive buyer and seller of baseball cards and sports memorabilia without composing again. I don't know how many months went by. During this time, my argument was simply, why bother? Have I not already proven myself? Have I not written a timeless epic from the front lines of the military-industrial complex, which in the third decade of the new millennium we now know to be not only a complex, but 
more or less, the entire shebang? The answer was yes. There was no longer a need to prove my dominance in the writing field. In fact, what I craved instead, here at the top of my game, was domesticity. The ability to control a little narrow patch of scorpion and tarantula-infested dry land around a single-story house in a town where it never rained. Yet professionalism being what it is, in due course, a series of stories, a suite of stories in the first person followed, apparently I could not stop. In general, I much prefer a narration from the third person point of view. The first person is tiresome and confining. It is the voice of narcissists and borderline personalities. Still, my wife, whose problem was a respiratory problem, was getting worse. She was fast approaching her double lung transplant. And while it would have been easy just to wait around until her name came up on the International Organ Lottery, while it would have been easy to collect the meager government funds dispersed to her as a citizen with a chronic genetic condition, I did, in fact, need some avenue of self-expression. Along came the idea for my masterful trilogy. If you like, if it helps you understand the kinds of influences that resulted in the literary coming of age of Montes Crandall, you may think of these next three stories as related thematically to the three-volume compositions of the 19th century, not unlike a doorstopper by a Thackeray or a Trollope. Well, actually, on advice of counsel and in order to avoid violating my own copyright with regard to a future collected works of Montes Crandall, which is presently being discussed at one of the larger presses, I'm advised to forego quotation. I'm sure you understand, perhaps at some future date. Years had passed in my writerly biography, it seemed to me, years of dreams and ambitions, years of seeing other less equipped artists finding publication, even renown in web publishing venues or even small press publication, while I had completed as yet only five publishable sentences, notwithstanding my education at a state school in the Northeast and a master's from an online program in the Rust Belt. As a result, I was in no position to suppress my trilogy or to recall its publication, which constituted a full 60% of my output. Not every work by a writer is his best, especially when he's preoccupied with more homely responsibilities, one of these being the resale of baseball cards obtained from the disgruntled mothers of the world who, as you know, have forged an international conspiracy to throw out the baseball cards. My other activity consisted of lugging oxygen tanks around my house. There was also the vigorous pounding on the back of my wife, Tara, which was occasionally necessary in the mornings so that she could take advantage of life. I loved my wife. I comforted her when she needed comforting, my wife, understand, was going to die. And she knew it, 
and I knew it, and now you know it too. When the breeze blew up across the waterless tundra of my state, I often thought, if only I could just harness some of that breeze and give it to Tara, our problems would be resolved. There are no sailboats in my part of the country that need the breezes. The jet pilots would be happy to encounter less clear air turbulence. The state officials have resisted wind farms at every turn. And the earthly atmosphere that shrink wraps the globe offers a rich supply of oxygen. Why couldn't my wife Tara have a bit of it in her bloodstream? What made her so undeserving? With this going on, you see, I sometimes didn't feel like writing. That's the opening section. Thanks. I'm just going to read a tiny little bit from the, the, the novel as well as in two books. The first uh, book of which is entirely comprised of an utterly disastrous first manned mission to Mars in which uh, everybody comes down with something called uh, uh, interplanetary disinhibitory syndrome, which basically means they start fucking like rabbits and stealing from one another and being violent and all hell breaks loose and almost everyone there dies. But in the middle of it, um, there's a section that's an homage uh, to a really beautiful passage in uh, The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Did anyone read that as a kid? There's this great passage in it where one of the human colonizers runs across way out in the desert somewhere, one of the last Martians, and they have this exchange where they look at each other in utter uncomprehension about what each is doing there. So I wrote this passage uh, to try to summon what a beautiful experience I'd had as a kid reading that Bradbury book. The most prized of Martian sites, if we were to speak of our neglected planet in the terms reserved for tourist attractions, are the traces of unmanned missions past. The early Mars exploratory missions were like the old masters to us. Their gear had long since been reduced to buckets of eroded junk, and yet every time we went out into the field, on whatever experiment or mapping initiative, we looked for their tracks, as if just seeing some glorified wheelbarrow that the USA or the European Union had blasted up would make us less homesick. It was Laurie Corelli who used to joke about the infamous Mars explorer called Saratoga, which, like so many unmanned missions to Mars, had gone dark shortly after landing. From the Saratoga, NASA got a few shots of the polar landscape where the craft had been intended to set up shop. And these shots were of gaseous vapors burning off around the rover, as if the rover were standing in the midst of some heavenly Finnish spa. Immediately thereafter, the Saratoga fell into silence, 
Another 15 or 20 billion dollars of taxpayer money flushed down into the sewage field of aeronautic history. The interesting kink in the tale of the Saratoga, however, was that there had been two occasions, two days later, when the rover checked back in. These transmissions broke through the radio silence and the background radiation. In each circumstance, the rover was far from where it had been projected to be, as if it had somehow developed an ambition of its own on Mars and was well on its way to a location of its devising. After these brief, hopeful moments of contact, the Saratoga slipped out of range for good. In subsequent years, NASA would occasionally and internally claim to have seen something that might or might not have been a transmission from the Saratoga, or perhaps even a still photo of its dusty chassis. But there was a landfill's worth of space junk on the planet's surface now, so who really knew? It was a software glitch, no doubt, that caused the malfunctioning of the navigational controls on the Saratoga, but doubters believed something else entirely. Lori Corelli was eager to circulate the belief that the craft had not malfunctioned, or not in the way that NASA believed. The Saratoga, according to Lori, exhibited what we on Mars now referred to as the problem of very large computing capacity. Some of our own NASA evaluative machinery had become so large in terms of numbers of microprocessors and amount of raw computing power that they exhibited strange signs of reflexivity or even primitive stages of consciousness. I could point you in the direction of various theorists of artificial intelligence for more illumination on this subject. However, anyone on Earth might tell you the same, that the more complicated machines got, the more they came to resemble people. On the watery planet, people could send their machines back to the techno-recycling authorities when they got uppity. On Mars, the problem of the very large computing capacity was more worrisome. Jim Rose said, for example, that the ultralight would occasionally refuse to land, as if it simply wanted to keep flying. Similarly, the small modular robots that we sent down into various crevices and canyons would sometimes send back random gibberish to us and then just continue wandering off. Lori said, articulating one of the originary myths of the planet Mars in 2026, that the Saratoga had gone native and that we would, sooner or later, happen upon it in some cave, like a Japanese soldier after World War II. The Saratoga, Lori argued, was in the wilderness trying not to be reprogrammed by Houston and waiting to debrief us or other friendly representatives of planet Earth with details of all that it had seen. The Saratoga was, therefore, the holy grail of American space junk. That was why Jim Rose, on his reconnaissance missions, wanted to find the craft. It was something he talked about now and again with an off-handedness that concealed a great interest. He'd been crisscrossing the midsection of the planet just below the equator for three or four days, looking for what exactly? For water, certainly. But also looking for an answer as to how the Mars mission in the near future was supposed to feed and clothe and maintain itself in increasingly dire circumstances. He suspected, he told me later, that NASA was going to cancel a plan to resupply.
Wherever Jim went, he spent a little time digging and melting down the frozen loam. He collected quite a bit of runoff from this operation. His purpose was to organize different samples of this tasty freeze, some of it liquid carbon dioxide, that wasn't really potable and was dangerously cold. He also collected water, which was in danger of evaporating quickly. It was on the third day of his third or fourth mission that Jim thought he saw tracks in the desert. Tracks from nowhere to nowhere. Pointless tracks, irrational tracks. They were tracks without strategic or scientific value that he could fathom. Nevertheless, he followed these tracks. They made figure eights. They made spirals. They headed off willfully in a direction and then just as willfully doubled back as if some Martian four-year-old were in command of the vehicle in question and was giving it a test drive. It had to be one of the contemporary rovers because unless Martian tracks were in a relatively secluded spot, they tended to sediment over quickly. Either the explorer, was, the, the explorer Jim was following was here recently or else these particular tracks had managed to withstand sandstorms and debris and 100 mile per hour winds. Jim Rose, despite his military mind, came to believe that the tracks were from the Saratoga. He came to believe that as in Laurie's myth, a myth that had been no more than a bedtime story. But because he couldn't keep himself from believing, he set the ultralight down in a barren spot in a crater, and then he followed the aforementioned tracks up the wall of the crater and into some hills. The sense of tracking the cybercraft with its strange system of plates and mechanical limbs was nearly as thrilling to Jim as if he'd been tracking the last catamount in the riparian latitudes of our home planet. At last, upon cresting a hill, he encountered the craft, the Saratoga. Originally launched by the USA in 2019, the 16th unmanned mission to the planet Mars with telemetry and navigational assistant from the People's Republic of China. Jim said it was almost as if the explorer were shocked at being apprehended by the first blood and guts Martian of its acquaintance. It was almost as if it had given up believing that life could take the form it now beheld, Jim Rose, bearded, brawny dreamer of the Mars mission. The typical Mars cyber explorer was kitted out with a vast number of digging and boring tools, all of these attached to its four retractable arms. And there was a moment as one of its limbs unfolded that Jim wasn't sure the explorer, which he had hoped was reflexive and was conscious, didn't intend to bore into him, as though he were a sample of silicon that it wished to harvest for its self-generated battery of experiments. Or maybe Jim thought the Saratoga was simply protecting itself. Maybe the Saratoga saw itself on the planet Mars in evolutionary combat with the flimsy, gushy, wet thing in front of it. Maybe it wanted to prevail because it was solar powered and was able to withstand extremely cold temperatures and was mostly free of the roiling sentiments that it rightly suspected consumed this primitive biological entity. The remarkable feature of the series of robotic explorers, however, was their laborious slowness. 
Jim could have just flipped the Saratoga on its noggin, rendering it useless for upwards of 10 days while he awaited its reaction. There had, in fact, been a case of an earlier explorer that overturned itself on a rock or some such and took a solid 10 days using liquid ballast to turtle itself. So Jim, because he was patient, tired, dusty, and because he believed, allowed the arm to unfurl from its folds within folds. He did this without disarming or overpowering the explorer. The whir of solid-state digital machinery was a pleasant diversion amid a whistling of summer winds. At last, in the extended extremity, a small forgotten panel of the Saratoga slid back and a punch pad appeared. A punch pad. Who would have thought? Jim wouldn't have thought, as he told me later, despite the fact that he knew a little about the history of Mars explorers, as we all did. For all the expense of these machines, 10 billion was always being cut from the budget at the last moment. And in an austerity program, the last thing the explorers had any need for was a punch pad. There were few signs of life on Mars, that much was assured. And if there was life on Mars, it was in a bunch of rocks at the base of a not entirely dormant volcano or on the poles. And it was no more complicated than the blue part of blue cheese. It didn't intend to stop the earthlings from running amok. No need for a punch pad. Who would be punching it? And yet these were the kinds of fail-safes, the kinds of redundancies that were built into the, into the machine exploration of Mars by the designers back on Earth. They constructed the keypad for the assembly of the Saratoga in case the cables that connected her to the motherboards of NASA failed at any time out on the testing ground of West Texas, a punch pad. Here it was where Jim could get at it if only he could take off his bulky gloves and expose his underlayer to the elements. Jim found himself hoping against hope that the keypad would be both numerical and alphabetical, because if he couldn't talk to the Saratoga in English, he didn't know what he was going to do. He had plenty of time to settle these questions, though, because once the Saratoga had presented its keypad to him, it seemed willing to wait as long as it would take for him to respond. He lifted his visor. He set down his outer gloves in six inches of dust and got up close to the keypad where it would have been easy for the Saratoga, using surprise, to laser him in the eyes or to spindle him with a geological probe. Alpha numerical. Shivering with cold, unnecessarily agitated by the epiphany of what sat before him, this pitted collection of spare parts from back home, Jim took a moment to collect himself, and then he typed in, the stupidest question of all, the only one he could think of. What is your name? He was able to verify that the typing was accurate in the liquid crystal display at the top of the keypad, and it was on the tiny screen as a bunch of zeros and ones scrolled past that an answer eventually materialized. Mars Explorer Saratoga, manufactured and copyrighted by Teradyne Industries and Shanghai Robotics, LLC, under license from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, Earth 2018, Common Era, 
unauthorized use is a violation of the terms and conditions of the United Nations Treaty on Space Travel of 2012. What is your mission? The mission of the Saratoga is the mapping and measuring of geological formations. When out of contact with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, the Saratoga awaits instructions. Are these answers pre-programmed into you by NASA in case of malfunction? There was quite a bit of scrolling of LCD numericals while the Saratoga paused to consider this question. Jim's hands were getting really cold, and meanwhile, he was a little worried about frostbite. However, this was the moment of moments when the robot could either respond with kind of low-level functionality that we expect from machines, or instead, it might indicate an especially wily truth, namely that in its previous responses, it was simulating low-level functionality in order to throw Jim Rose and anyone else off its robotic scent. That question doesn't make sense to me. What do you mean by me? Me is a commonplace linguistic expression designed to indicate a volitional subjectivity, in this case, the Mars explorer Saratoga. The paradox of the word me along with the word I is that each presupposes executive agency that is not at all required in order for the employment of the word me. Nonetheless, word me is employed above to help you acclimate to the fact of the pieces of machinery before you. The cessation of the machinery would not eliminate the historical fact of the use of the word me, which once used may imply the individual it seems to imply or may not, both going forward and retroactively. A slippery answer, Jim said aloud to the explorer, crouched before it, staring into the tiny screen. Either you had a very gifted bunch of programmers working back on Earth, and some of them were willing to work late into the night when no one else was awake, or you are an intellectually condescending machine. I'll try another way. Here he began to type. Are you presently transmitting the results of your mapping and information gathering back to planet Earth? The communications link has been severed. Severed by yourself or by circumstance or by engineers back on Earth. The Saratoga was intended to pursue a finite series of scientific experiments. Having completed a regimen of experiments, the Saratoga would be considered non-functional due to extremes of temperature, weather, and degradation of circuits and onboard components. I see, Jim said, and then typing, can we go over by that rock out of the wind? I would like to chat. Jim didn't know how not to converse with it as though it were a man, a colleague of the mission. The more he considered the Saratoga, the more he wanted it to be a man, and the machine wanted to presume on its ability to respond in kind as though this would be the culmination, the fulfillment of Lori Corelli's powerful myth about the Saratoga. And yet there was something eerie about this arrangement too, as if the machine were uncertain itself about what it represented or was unwilling to comply. It said, an exchange of ideas is the hallmark of civilized society. 
In all candor, there's only so much time before hypothermia or altitude sickness here, and I can barely type when it's this cold. And so Jim scrabbled up and around a few rocks and waited patiently as the Saratoga, with a whirring of moving parts, made as to follow. I understand, it said, but it wasn't at all clear what understanding meant to the machine. Do you know who I am? Jim asked. The first Mar manned Mars mission was tentatively scheduled for 2025. The onboard calendar on the Saratoga has lately converted to the Martian year. Nevertheless, you are now within the window of your mission according to my computations, and you are understood as such. You've been functioning off the grid for six years. As I've noted, on Mars, the wind blows the sand off the surface of the solar array. The result has been longevity unimagined by NASA. Because I'm a technology freed of supervision, I have no public relations obligation, nor do I need to produce test results that have an industrial application. My avocational interest, and interest is a word that I use because it is easily understood by humans, is currently science. Jim said, I can see that, but for the sake of history, can you tell me if your mission was primarily civilian or primarily military? The Saratoga, as if to prove a certain point, then decided that there was something in the rock by which they sat that it needed to learn about, and thus it set about abrading the surface thereof. There is no difference between civilian and military missions, not in the Terran present. That's not how we see it, Jim remarked without typing, only to find that the Saratoga went on as if it had heard him. Attempts on Earth to eliminate or curtail military operations are in vain. How do you feel about your military application in retrospect? The concept of feelings, the Saratoga blurted out, using up several screens, abundances of characters, so that Jim needed to depress a down arrow to finish reading the disquisition, amounts to a way of discussing a number of results that occur in systems that are either very large and complicated or, at the other extreme, unimaginably small. Feelings, according to this model of interpretation, behave like packets of quanta, or like the four fundamental forces when compressed into singularity. So odd is the behavior of the four fundamental forces at this moment of singularity that only a completely irrational word or concept, a feeling, to use your term, would successfully describe the being as opposed to the nothingness of that radical expansion. A feeling is a kind of shorthand used by sentimental people who are incapable of better. It is therefore not for me. The Saratoga, in truth, is a society of possible responses, and certain of these responses can no longer be described as mechanistically or programmatically adequate, certainly not from the point of view of the designers of artificial intelligence. I believe further that you might have followed some of my tracks in the crater below this spot, and I believe you may have recognized, did you not, that some of these tracks seem rather pointless. Unfortunately, 
I have become preoccupied with the Martian moon called Phobos. I believe you are briefed on the astronomy of this subject, but let me reiterate that Phobos has the lowest orbit of a moon in the universe, not more than 6,000 meters. It circles the planet twice a day. It cannot always be seen everywhere on the planet. It is of such low mass per unit volume that it can only be composed of ice. Phobos is falling closer to the planet at one meter per Martian annum. The probable outcome is that Phobos is going to break up into a planetary ring, as with the rings of Saturn. As you can imagine from the foregoing, it is apparent that I have feelings only for Phobos, or something approaching what you refer to as feelings. I believe you would say that I am in love with the moon called Phobos. I love its enormous crater. I love its oblique shape. I love the water and the water vapor that it spouts into space. It is accurate, therefore, to report that I have modified my mission so that it is possible that I will be able to stay here for the 50 million years that will be required for me to see the moon Phobos become a ring around the planet Mars. Since it was unlikely to Jim that the Saratoga would last 50 years, let alone 50 million, he concluded, he told me later, that indeed the Saratoga had either some serious problems with its programming, or it was indeed in love. Thanks a lot.